You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. At once we were in motion. Have you ever seen a battery move into action? It is a spirited sight. Cannoneers swing to their seats on the limber chest. Horses are spurred and lashed into a gallop. Officers draw their sabers and shout their orders in ringing tones. Up a lane, then to the right in the open field, a little below the crest, and we dismounted and unlimbered. And there was a battlefield before us, lines of blue with volleys and wreaths of smoke, batteries belching flames. Right and left of us were our own people of the 1st Brigade. Back of us rode Beauregard and his staff, to and fro past Jackson, holding up a bandaged hand. Our guns were shotted and fired, and it seemed the greatest noise we'd ever heard. Private James P. Smith, Rockbridge Artillery, Jackson's Brigade, at the First Battle of Manassas. Welcome to the 49th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast. After covering two of the Civil War combat arms already, infantry and cavalry, this week we get to the third combat arm, the artillery. Probably the first thing to know about the guns used during the war is that it's generally accepted that the effect of artillery fire was psychological as much as physical probably more so psychological, since the percentage of casualties caused by gunfire seldom exceeded 10% and was often less. And just a note on terminology, but on the podcast, when we speak of guns and gunfire, or to cannons and cannon fire, we're referring to artillery. And then when we're talking about the infantry's shoulder arms, We'll refer to them as rifles or muskets and to rifle or musket fire. Exceptions to this may occur when we quote a first-person account, and then, of course, that person may call a musket a gun. So that may be a bit confusing, but hopefully all that makes sense. I think it does, and our listeners are pretty smart cookies, so they'll keep it straight. But anyway, like I said, it's generally accepted that the effect of artillery fire during the Civil War was more psychological than physical. So just keep in mind that gunfire had a powerful effect on morale, and not only for those on the receiving end of the fire. For example, at Gettysburg, when Lieutenant Charles Hazlitt was told that Little Round Top was a poor position for his guns, he responded, quote, Never mind that. The sound of my guns will be encouraging to our troops and disheartening to the others. End quote. And he was right. Certainly, friendly artillery fire boosted the morale of infantry waiting to advance, 
When they could see their guns battering the enemy positions, and the more guns, the more impressive it all looked and sounded. And then infantry on the defensive, under fire from enemy cannon, expected their own guns to reply, even though it might be tactically unsound to do so. For example, turning to Gettysburg again, on the afternoon of July 3rd, as the full fury of the Confederate artillery bombardment pounded the Union line on Cemetery Ridge, 2nd Corps Commander Winfield Scott Hancock insisted the Federal cannon respond with counter-battery fire, even though the Army's artillery chief had ordered that ammunition be conserved for the expected rebel ground assault. But Hancock insisted that the morale of the Union infantry required the Union artillery reply, and he himself gave direct orders to that effect to several batteries. As we mentioned just a minute ago, direct evidence of the comparatively small physical effect artillery fire had during Civil War battles can be found from the fact that the share of casualties caused by gunfire seldom exceeded 10% and was often less. Despite the artillery's fearsome reputation, it was always the infantry's muskets that caused the vast majority of casualties on any Civil War battlefield. But that's not to downplay the crucial role artillery played on the war's battlefields, even if the guns were not always as lethal as might be imagined. The undeniable effect on morale of cannon fire, with the subsequent continuous crashing and the drifting smoke, was considerable. When artillery pieces were firing, they were an inspiring sight, and gave the impression of power and great destructiveness. Infantrymen, even if not on the receiving end, were invariably impressed. One who fought at Antietam said, A battalion of artillery with guns at full gallop swept into position, opening in volleys. It was a grand and inspiring sight to witness batteries going headlong into action. The neighing of horses, the rumbling of caissons, the halt, the furious cannonade, with buglers clanging out the order, the passing of ammunition, the ramming, the sighting, the firing and the swabbing, the guns booming in chorus like heaven-rending thunder. With artillery, as with infantry weapons and cavalry equipment, the Union started the war with a distinct advantage over their opponent. To these early advantages in the manufacturing capacity of northern foundries and factories could be added a well-trained professional corps of artillerymen in the U.S. regular army. The Confederates had a tough time trying to catch up, something they never completely achieved, particularly with regard to equipment and ammunition, especially fuses. The Confederate artilleryman E. Porter Alexander had this to say about southern disadvantages at the start of hostilities. Quote, the drawbacks upon its efficiency at the beginning of the war were very serious and came both from its organization and from its equipment. The faults of its organization were recognized and gradually overcome within 18 months. The deficiencies of equipment, the result of causes many of which were beyond control, continued with but partial mitigation to the end of the war. The batteries were generally composed of but four guns, which is not an economical arrangement, and as no objection was made to it, either by Army headquarters or at the War Department, and as the scarcity of both horses and ordnance equipment made it difficult to get, and more so to maintain, a six-gun battery, 
It resulted in that few six-gun batteries were put in the field, and nearly every one of those was eventually reduced to four guns. End quote. E. Porter Alexander is perhaps best known for his role commanding the Confederate artillery that supported Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. And if we once again turn to that battle for an example, we find that at Gettysburg, only four Confederate batteries out of 68 had the ideal complement of six guns. However, across the lines, in the Army of the Potomac, six-gun batteries were the norm, with only 14 of the 65 engaged having four guns. In the South in 1861, the only foundry for casting cannon was the Tredegar Ironworks at Richmond. Although a number of other private foundries were started during the war, the Confederates came to rely heavily on captured enemy pieces and equipment. It's estimated that during the war, the Tredegar Works could only ever work at around 30% capacity due to a chronic shortage of raw materials and, at times, skilled labor. To obtain tin, copper, coal, coke, and, above all, pig iron for cannon presented never-ending difficulties. In the early part of the war, the pig iron was of such poor quality that the field pieces produced were often more dangerous to the southern gunners than to the enemy. And so the Confederates came to rely heavily on captured enemy artillery pieces. In fact, without captured cannon, the southern artillery wouldn't have been able to compete on the battlefield. In the latter half of the war, it wasn't unusual to find Army of Northern Virginia batteries with all their guns having the U.S. stamp on them. Some rebel ordnance officers estimated at least two-thirds of their ordnance once belonged to Uncle Sam. A Confederate prisoner passing some Union artillery supposedly said, I swear y'all has got as many of these here U.S. guns as Wiens has. The practice of the rebel artillerymen was something wonderful in its accuracy. They dropped shot and shell right into our line repeatedly. They kept the air fairly filled with missiles of every variety. The shrapnel or canister was very much in evidence. I saw one of our men in the hospital with nine wounds in his right arm. I watched solid shot, round shot, strike with what sounded like an innocent thud in front of the guns, and bounding over battery and park, fly through the treetops, cutting some of them off so suddenly that it seemed to me they lingered for an instant, undecided which way to fall. These round shot did not appear to be in a hurry. They came along slowly and deliberately, apparently, and there appeared no harm in them until they hit something. I was lying on my back, supported on my elbows, watching the shells explode overhead, and speculating as to how long I could hold up my finger before it would be shot off, when the order to get up was given. I turned over quickly to look at Colonel Kimball, who had given the order, thinking he had become suddenly insane, never dreaming that he intended to advance in that fire and firmly believing that the regiment would not last one minute after the men had got fairly on their feet. Sure enough, there was Kimball, looking all right. He repeated the order, Get up the ninth, and, I thought, looked directly at me. We got up and went forward. Lieutenant Matthew J. Graham, Ninth New York, at the Battle of Antietam. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. 
I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. For a better understanding of the artillery arm, certain terms probably need explanation. So that's what we're going to do here in this part of the episode. First of all, what most of us today just think of as Civil War cannon were actually divided into two main categories. There were guns and there were howitzers. Guns are the pieces you mostly see sitting around the landscape if you visit a Civil War battlefield today. They are the relatively long-barreled cannon designed to fire projectiles at a high velocity and nearly flat trajectory. They are direct fire weapons, which means the gunner must see the target before firing. And then besides guns, there were howitzers. These were shorter-barreled cannon. With the howitzer, its muzzle velocity is less than that of a gun, so its range is shorter. And the projectile's trajectory is more of an arc, since the idea with the howitzer is to lob a shell over enemy defenses or hit troops hidden from view, say, behind a hill. But then just to complicate things a bit, there were also gun howitzers, which were guns capable of firing at a relatively high angle, although not one comparable with a howitzer. The popular 12-pounder Napoleon, used by both sides, was a gun howitzer. But all the guns at the start of the Civil War were smoothbore muzzle loaders. As the war went on, rifled pieces became more common, but loading by the muzzle remained the method of choice for almost all the cannon that saw action during the conflict, since unlike some small arms such as the breech-loading Sharps cavalry carbine, the widespread use of breech-loading artillery didn't occur until after the Civil War. And just a footnote, but if you visit a Civil War battlefield today, you'll probably notice that some of the cannon are a greenish faded color, while others are black. Well, the green ones are bronze smooth bores, and obviously the bronze has weathered to that green color. And then the black cannon you see today are rifled pieces, and they are iron. So that's just a little bit of trivia you can pull out to impress someone you're with who's not a Civil War buff. Anyway, as with muskets, the rifling inside a cannon's barrel would increase its accuracy and range. It's said the difference between a smoothbore cannon and a rifled cannon is that with a smoothbore, you could hit a barn, but with a rifled cannon, you could hit the barn door. As most of you can probably picture in your mind's eye, 
Civil War field artillery, that is, cannon that operated with infantry and cavalry, Civil War field artillery was mounted on a two-wheeled wooden carriage. Or more correctly, the barrel of the gun was mounted on a carriage. And obviously, the wheeled carriage enabled the gun to be easily transported, and it also held the cannon in place while it was aimed and fired. But then there was also the limber, which was a two-wheeled cart consisting of an ammo chest holding the ready ammunition. For travel, the two-wheeled limber and the two-wheeled gun carriage were hooked up, so the result was a four-wheeled cart. Fully loaded, the combination of a 12-pounder Napoleon and limber had a draw weight of over 3,800 pounds. The limber ammunition chest could serve as a seat for three artillerymen, but in order to spare the horses, the men would ride only when fast movement was really necessary. A grease bucket and two water buckets were slung underneath the limber, and a tarpaulin strapped on top of the ammo chest. The tarp also served as a welcome seat cushion. Artillerymen seated on these ammunition chests had a jolting, jarring ride, clinging desperately to the ammo chest handles. Not only were the men sitting on all that gunpowder, but if thrown off when moving at speed, broken bones were inevitable, and the man would also have to roll clear of the pounding hooves and bounding wheels of any following cannon or caissons. A caisson was another two-wheeled cart designed to transport ammunition in two chests identical to the one on a limber. Attached to the rear of the caisson was a spare wheel. The caisson was normally attached to a limber, with the hole forming another four-wheeled cart carrying a total of three ammo chests. With all that ammunition, as well as the spare wheel, the total load of the limber and caisson combination exceeded that of the gun and limber pairing. The Napoleon, the model 1857 12-pounder gun howitzer, was probably the most popular, and certainly the best-known, field piece of the Civil War. The Napoleon was named after the French Emperor Napoleon III, who in the early 1850s instructed his ordnance department to design a cannon with which he could standardize his field artillery. The 1857 model Napoleon was a muzzle-loading, smoothbore cannon made of bronze. It was popular with artillerymen because if it burst, it wouldn't shatter like an iron gun, and it was popular because of its versatility in firing all four of the different types of artillery ammunition. More on those in a minute. The Napoleon had a bore of 4.62 inches and a muzzle velocity of 1,400 feet a second. Using a charge of 2.5 pounds and with a barrel at a 5-degree elevation, the Napoleon could fire a 12-pound solid iron cannonball out to 1,680 yards. However, it was most effective when firing ball or shell at ranges of 400 to 1,200 yards. At 1,000 yards, a solid shot would penetrate about one foot of oak. And when using canister, the Napoleon was most effective when firing at ranges below 350 yards. And just another piece of trivia, but all Napoleons manufactured in the north were distinguishable from those made in the south because of the bulge or swelling at the muzzle, something that was missing from Confederate Napoleons. The 12-pounder Napoleon could fire all four of the main types of ammunition used by field artillery during the Civil War, those being solid shot, shell, spherical case shot, commonly known as shrapnel, and then last but not least, canister. 
and each of those four types of projectiles was attached to a block of wood called a sabo, which fell away after firing. For the guns and 12-pounder gun howitzers, the cartridge was a bag made of woolen material free of any cotton, containing the charge of gunpowder, with the projectile attached to the same sabo, making what was called fixed ammunition. And so let's give a brief description of each type of ammunition. First, solid shot. For smooth bore cannon, the cast iron solid shot was the familiar round cannonball. For rifled cannon, the elongated solid projectile was called a bolt. Solid shot was used for battering walls, fortifications, in counter battery fire, and against massed troops. It was more accurate than other types of ammunition and ranged further. On hard ground, there was the added advantage of possible grazing fire. With this type of fire, the gunner aimed to hit the ground just in front of the target so that the cannonball bounced, hitting the enemy at about chest height, and continued to bounce another two or three times, killing a number of men or horses as it plowed through the enemy formation. Grazing fire was obviously best used on dry, level ground, since the gunner was hoping for several bounces, as with a flat stone skipped across the surface of a pond. If a 12-pounder Napoleon fired with the barrel horizontal, the ball would strike the ground at about 325 yards. The next bounce would be at around 600 yards, with a third some 150 yards further on. After that, it was probably rolling, but still capable of injuring anybody that got in its way. Out to the second bounce, the ball was about chest height. After that, it was the knees that were the most vulnerable. Of the usual 32 rounds in a 12-pounder Napoleon's ammunition chest, a dozen were solid shot. The next type of ammunition was the spherical case shot, or shrapnel. It was a hollow, cast-iron shot filled with musket balls, 78 of them for a Napoleon, and it was designed to burst in the air, causing a destructive shower of musket balls to descend on the enemy. And because these projectiles were intended to burst in the air, the selection of the right fuse was particularly important. Not only must the range be estimated accurately, but also the gunner must remember to select different fuses as the enemy advanced. Well, these difficulties made it best used against stationary troop formations or those troops moving slowly. Of the usual 32 rounds in a 12-pounder Napoleon's ammunition chest, a dozen were case shot. The third type of ammunition was shell. As its name implies, a shell was a hollow iron projectile containing a bursting charge of black powder that was ignited by a fuse lit by the flash of the propellant charge. There were two types. First, the timed fuse shell, which was designed to target troops in the open. The key to effective firing lay in selecting the fuse with the appropriate burning time for the range of the target, a task open to error. The second type was a percussion shell that burst on impact. With both types, the small bursting charge of only half a pound of powder in a Napoleon shell meant that the effect on the enemy was often more psychological than physical. Only four out of the project 32 projectiles in a 12-pounder Napoleon's ammunition chest were shells. The fourth type of ammunition was canister, and this was the deadliest type of artillery ammo. It was only used at close range, at distances of 350 yards or less, and there were only four rounds of canister in a 12-pounder Napoleon's ammo chest. 
canister resembled a large shotgun cartridge in that it consisted of a tin cylinder filled with lead or iron balls, all packed in four tiers in sawdust. And as the tin cylinder left the cannon's barrel, it disintegrated, allowing the balls to be hurled forward in a lethal cone of destruction. Basically, it turned the gunner howitzer into a giant shotgun. And because of that, canister was essential in the last moments of a defensive stand, since it could prove to be the deciding factor in breaking up an enemy attack. On a battlefield, as the situation became desperate, with enemy infantry closing in on the cannon's position, threatening to overrun it, double and sometimes even triple canister was fired into the advancing enemy ranks. Listen to this account from the Battle of Antietam. We knew little of what was going on beyond our immediate vicinity. We were in the hottest hornet's nest and had all we could do to attend to what was in our front whilst the sounds of severe battle reached our ears from all directions. Bullets, shot, and shell whistled and screamed around us. Wounded men came to the rear in large numbers, and the six Napoleon guns of Battery B hurled forth destruction in double rounds of canister as the enemy in increased numbers rushed forward to capture the guns. He seemed to be making headway against our troops in the cornfield to our left, and the piece on the pike was firing in that direction. The gun was on a part of the road which sloped towards us, and every time it went off it recoiled a great distance down the slope. In the midst of this pandemonium, I happened to look at this gun and noticed that the cannoneers had carelessly allowed the elevating screw to run down, and every time the piece was fired, its elevation was increased, until now the missiles were harmlessly thrown high over the heads of the enemy in its front. I yelled to the gunner to run up his elevating screw, but in the din he could not hear me. I jumped from my horse, rapidly ran up the elevating screw until the muzzle pointed almost into the ground in front, and then nodded to the gunner to pull his lanyard. The discharge carried away most of the fence in front of it and produced great destruction in the enemy's ranks, as did the subsequent discharges. The enemy got so close to the battery in, in his desperate attempts to capture it that the pieces were double-shotted with canister before which whole ranks went down. And after we got possession of the field, dead men were found piled on top of each other. John Gibbon, Brigade Commander, Army of the Potomac. A Union six-gun battery with its attached limbers and caissons, that is, the fighting battery, which was the guns plus first-line ammunition, had 104 men, 14 saddle horses, and 72 draft horses. That doesn't include the quartermaster sergeant, stable sergeant, battery wagon, forge, ambulance wagon, their drivers, the artificers, cooks, and the extra men held to replace losses. And then an additional 10 saddle horses were required, as well as up to 25 draft horses, which would draw the battery wagon, forge, ambulance, and provide replacements for equine losses in the fighting battery. The organization of artillery batteries in both armies was basically the same, with the differences being in number and type of pieces in the battery, and the number of men serving the battery in those various capacities. But it was in these differences that we find the average Union battery was a stronger unit in terms of firepower and manpower than a Confederate unit. 
But Union or Confederate, artillery units needed a special type of man, one with technical aptitude as well as some mathematical education and ability. These qualities had to be combined with the cold courage necessary to work methodically on the complex, interconnected tasks of the gun crew, all while bullets, shot, and shell flew around them. Artillerymen had to be a special breed indeed. We took up position in the road near the corner of an open field with our two parrot guns and one gun of Carpenter's battery on echelon with each gun's horses and limber off on its left among the trees. Both Captain Joe Carpenter and his brother John, who was his first lieutenant, were with this gun, as was their custom when any of their guns went into action. We soon let the enemy know where we were, and they replied promptly, getting our range in a few rounds. General Winder, commander of our brigade, dismounted, and in his shirt sleeves had taken his stand a few places to the left of my gun, and with his field glass was intently observing the progress of the battle. We had been engaged less than fifteen minutes when Captain Carpenter was struck in the head by a piece of shell, from which, after lingering a few weeks, he died. Between my gun and limber, where General Winder stood, was a constant stream of shells tearing through the trees and bursting close by. While the enemy's guns were changing their position, he gave some directions, which we could not hear for the surrounding noise. I, being nearest, turned and walking toward him, asked what he said. As he put his hand to his mouth to repeat the remark, a shell passed through his side and arm, tearing them fearfully. He fell straight back at full length and lay quivering on the ground. The next man struck was Major Snowden Andrews, afterward colonel of artillery. While standing nearby us, his shell burst as it passed him, tearing his clothes and wounding him severely. Next, I saw a ricocheting shell strike Captain Caskey on his seat, which knocked him eight or ten feet and his red cap some feet farther. He did not get straightened up until he had overtaken his cap on the opposite side of some bushes, through which they had both been propelled. Lieutenant Graham, of our battery, also received a painful, though not serious, wound before the day was over. This proved to be a very dangerous place for officers, but not a private soldier was touched. Private Edward A. Moore, Rockbridge, Virginia Artillery, at the Battle of Cedar Mountain. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Civil War Artillery at Gettysburg, Organization, Equipment, Ammunition, and Operations, by Philip M. Cole. And although the title of this book is Civil War Artillery at Gettysburg, it's actually an excellent, informative overview of Civil War field artillery in general, and it just uses the Battle of Gettysburg to illustrate Civil War artillery organization, equipment, ammunition, and operations. As always, you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.blogspot.com. And speaking of book recommendations, we'll just remind y'all that this past week we released a special mini-episode devoted to book recommendations for the Gettysburg Address, since this month will be the 150th anniversary of Abraham Lincoln giving that historic speech. And also, don't forget that coming up on Monday, the 18th, we'll be releasing a special bonus episode of the podcast. And then, uh, to get back to artillery, 
Uh, but just as we did with muskets, we'll round up a couple of YouTube videos about Civil War artillery and put those on the website and Facebook page so that you can check them out there. And one of those videos goes into some detail as far as the loading and firing drills of a Civil War cannon. And then we wanted to say we realize that in the cavalry and artillery episodes, we have neglected to talk in any depth about something very important. And that's the animals that were an essential part of those combat arms. And, and by animals, we mean horses, of course. So we'll probably try to rectify that at some point, maybe sometime doing just a short episode on horses and also throw mules in there. And we'll talk about the vital importance of those animals to Civil War armies. Maybe that would even be a good topic for a bonus episode. Hmm, maybe. Well, we'll see. But then something we always look forward to is being able to say thank you to those of you who made a donation recently to help support the podcast. And this past week, Adam V. and Paul D. did just that. So thanks, guys. And also a big thank you to a special friend of the podcast, Adam B. Uh, thanks, Adam, for Christmas a month early. And thanks to each of y'all for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Next week, we'll head back to eastern Virginia, down on the peninsula, southeast of Richmond, and we'll talk about Benjamin Butler and contrabands, and we'll also cover the Battle of Big Bethel that took place there on the peninsula in June 1861. So that'll be next time, but until then, take care. Well, thanks everyone. Bye. Trying not no. to. No. <laughs>